We now present you the best of podcast of the Mountain Care Old Time Radio Hour. Join us on a journey to the golden age of radio on our time machine back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Here are some of the best segments from this year's podcasts. Enjoy. Welcome to a new segment on the Old Time Radio Hour. This is called Talking Jazz with Sam. Welcome back to the podcast. Sam, how are you today? Hey, Bob. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you again. I always enjoy uh, coming in and, and relating some experiences that I've had. Well, thank you. Today we're talking jazz, and uh, especially two jazz artists, and we're going to start with Duke Ellington. Sam, will you tell me about Duke Ellington? Oh, the Duke. Uh, no one can replace Duke in the music business. He's a giant. But anyway, uh, let me give you uh, a little background. This happened to be in a town 30 miles from Philadelphia. Lovely town. And I happened to be a, the president at that time, of the Kiwanis Club, which, as you know, Bob, is a service uh, club to serve the community. And every year, they have a uh, campaign to raise money so they can spread their charity. And I think that's wonderful. Uh, Every year, though, the great birds, the great birds uh, of the club would have the Marine Band, which is a great draw for uh, everyone in the community. But at that time, I was a young snapper. Jitterbug <laughs> <laughs> uh, was at the height of, of the entertainment business. and. Uh, I didn't quite go along with getting the rain band. So how can I get around that? <laughs> I went to my friend, uh, uh, Louis, who had a music store. And together I, I proposed to him, would he be interested in 
joining me to go to Philadelphia and go to a jazz club if we could possibly get someone of a stature to replace the Marine Band. So one day we went down to Louis and I in his car. <laughs> and we went to this jazz club. And uh, jazz clubs are always alive, kicking, beautiful. So we went to the manager, little guy, and he was smoking a cigar. And I went up to excuse me, sir, and I told him the reason for there, why being there. And he said, okay, kid. What's <laughs> uh, we, we can do? So he excused himself. Went beyond the counter and somewhere else. Louis and I cooled our heels until we were seeing again. So about 15 minutes later, he was up. He said, okay, you guys, Louis and I. Uh, how would you like to have Duke Huntington? <laughs> oh, you gotta be kidding. Are you for real? <laughs> he said, yes, very much, he's real. Well, we'll do it, we'll do it, right on the spot. So, a date was came for Louis, I mean, uh, Duke and his orchestra to come to this marvelous little town and present a concert. Louis and I were so excited about it. And uh, the day came, publicity was out, and uh, I was hoping for a, an overflow crowd. But only to my dismay, it did not draw. Uh, and that time, Yes, I couldn't understand it because even at that time he was just great, and his name was uh, associated with uh, great music. So anyway, what could we do? I I entered Duke to the crowd, but before doing that, the band came down around six o'clock from New York, New York. <laughs> and uh, Duke was the first one out, of course, it's protocol. And uh, I greeted him and I asked him if he uh, would like to go to dinner. So, oh boy, <laughs> and I, you know, I was very young, Bob, and uh, uh, it just thrilled me to be able to have dinner with this person. So you had dinner with the Duke? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, the Duke and I. The Duke and I. We spent about an hour and it was a, a diner. <laughs> At that time diners were very big and so there was no problem for the Duke going to a diner. So we talked about many things. 
Uh, if you ever had the pleasure of meeting Duke, uh, he's a very smooth, varnished, <laughs> uh, elegant looking gentleman. Much like yourself, Sam. Oh, you're very kind, boy. <laughs> anyway, uh, how are we do? We go to the concert hall. The musicians, meanwhile, were doing their thing, and we had it. But as it, it, it bombed, as they say in the business. <laughs> Did you keep your presidency? Oh well, let me tell you that. That's another story, <laughs> but I'll quickly tell you. The old group, the old <laughs> smoking the cigars and with a big stomach, you know the type. Uh, they were getting together a little uh, bit of business <laughs> of what to do with this young slapper. <laughs> I had one ally, Louis. <laughs> but it didn't come to pass that they would impeach me. Good. That's okay with me. I don't care. I, I it was an artistic <laughs> success for me personally. Uh, I didn't do it for that reason, but it came to be that. So uh, we had then they clambered back into the bus and after giving the concert and Duke uh, thanked everyone. A very gracious guy. Uh, we shook hands, got in the bus, off they go to New York. Bob, please allow me, if you will, to tell you something about Frank Sinatra. Yes. You've heard of him. Oh, my way. <laughs> That's right. But this goes back years now to 1939 and uh, 1940. Uh, Frank was unknown at that time. He and the two kids from the neighborhood uh, entered a contest for uh, amateurism, and they didn't make it. But Frank, he broke away from the the two guys who was singing in, in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yes. The thing, <laughs> not exactly uh, uh, Las Vegas, but. Uh, Hogokum, he would at times, at night, go over to Jersey, Jersey, you know, the, the Hudson River uh, separated Hoboken and New City. And uh, <clears throat> he would go over to this, uh, we would call it a dive. <laughs> If you don't know the understanding of dive, yep. And uh, he would sing, and someone caught his voice, and uh, who was connected with Harry James. Harry James was a big band leader. Big bands at that time were very big, and uh, so lo and behold, Harry James hired Frank Sinatra to be his singing with that group. And then that lasted a little while, and then Tommy Dorsey heard Tommy Dorsey. Frank. And uh, 
he said, see, I'd like to have him for my band. So we hired him away from Harry James and took him on. And he had a number of fine musicians and his band was well received. Tommy Dorsey was at the top of the violin. So Frank uh, did indeed uh, become a member of the Dorsey group to the point where he was outstanding or outshining others on the program. Uh -oh. And one time uh, they played the Paramount in New York and the girls in the audience went crazy. And that told Frank, I want to go alone. <laughs> I don't need Dorsey. <laughs> and he decided to try he tried very hard to depart from uh, Dorsey, but Dorsey said, hey, look, Frank, come on, come on. You got a contract. Honor the contract. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. But he, uh, he went to his friends. Same time as the friends. Friends, and you say, Sam? Friends. Okay, I got you. You don't know who I, I'm with you now. Do you know, do you know the connotation? I, I I think I'm with you here. All right. And he's he's, he's angry because Dorsey won't let him go. His friends took care of that. <laughs> they went to uh, Tommy and said, Tommy, do you like playing this place? Oh, of course. Uh, do you like playing so-and-so? Oh, yes. Well, if you want to continue <laughs> going to those places and bringing band, you got to release Frank. So he saw the handwriting on the wall and said, oh, okay, okay. And the rest was history. <laughs> and the rest is history. The American comedy duo of George Burns and his wife, Gracie Allen, were a highly successful comedy team that entertained Vaultersville, film, radio, and TV audiences for over 40 years. A favorite of ours here at Mountain Care, here is the Mountain Explorers with George and Gracie. Wait until you see the picture I had taken. I'm not interested in any picture. We're here to do a broadcast. You know, the Democrats have a donkey and the Republicans have an elephant. What have you got, squirrel? Oh, I wish I would have thought of that, but I posed with a kangaroo. Kangaroo? <laughs> well, it will make a wonderful campaign picture. I'll bet. It's the mama kangaroo and the little baby kangaroo peeking, sticking his head out of the pouch and... A baby kangaroo sticking his head out of the pouch? Yes, and it's going to be my election slogan. What slogan? It's in the bag. <laughs> well, being that it is February, February Valentine's Day, we have now a number of stories dealing with Valentines. And our first Valentine story is from Carolyn West. Carolyn, please tell us your story. Thank you, Mike. 
I grew up in the mountains here in western North Carolina and became aware at a fairly early age that most people in the United States looked down on mountaineers and they considered us ignorant, uninformed, inbred, most any, most anything that you can, you know, say that is derogatory about people. And I was an early reader and I loved geography. I loved reading about places that I had never been, never seen, probably never would. And so I escaped in books and books became my best friends. So at a fairly early age, I decided that I wanted to travel. I wanted to see what the West, rest of the world was like because I loved reading about adventure stories, other places, and just fascinated with that. So when I graduated from college, I took a trip to Europe. It was a just traditional tour. And the tour originated in England and London and the first day I was there, I met this young man who was stationed in Germany as an American soldier, and he would get a long leave, and he would travel to one of the cities in Europe. And we just happened to be staying at the same hotel. So he stuck his head in the door one evening when I was visiting with some other young ladies who were on the tour, and they were from Michigan. And he stuck his head in the door and said, do y'all know so-and-so? And I started laughing because of the y'all and the Southern dialect. And so we met, we ended up spending the evening together. And the next day we saw each other again and um, he decided that he would propose. And of course I had graduated college. This is what I did as my graduation present for my parents. And I thought, well, everybody else is getting married <laughs> and I don't have any prospects. <laughs> and it was pretty exciting being in London and having someone propose, so I said yes, which is probably one of the most irrational things I ever did in my life because I was a serious, you know, contemplator about things. It was hard for me to make decisions and I would weigh the goods and the bads and you know I just didn't. And so actually what happened my next um, place was Germany on the tour and I don't know how he did it. He extended his leave and he joined um, in Germany. And the lady leading the tour thought this was, you know, so fascinating and here's this budding romance so she let him join the tour. And so, you know, within, you know, 24 hours or less, I was pretty much committed to getting married and he followed me around Germany and other places in Europe. And then he came back to the States because he'd volunteered for Vietnam and he got his orders to go to Vietnam. So he came back to the States and we were married less than a month's time passed. And none of you know me that well, but it is hard for me to make a decision. I can weigh the goods, the bads, you know, pros, cons all day long and still can't make a decision. So I told people, and I will tell you, the most irrational thing I ever did probably was to accept a marriage proposal and to ultimately get married. <laughs> 
but we were married um, for 42 years before he passed away. And we were truly strangers, so I guess we are a tribute to the fact that arranged marriages and strangers can work very well. <laughs> I'm now sitting out in the garden um, for five questions, and today's five questions is with Laddie McMillan. Laddie was from South Carolina, uh, joined the military at age 16. So, good morning, Laddie. How are you today, sir? Just fine, sir. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for joining us on Five Questions. So, um, Laddie, you joined the military at age 16. Can you tell me a little bit about your military experience? My military experience was at that age. At first, when I went in, I was a little shaky. But after that, I went to, do I need to tell where I went? Well, whatever you'd like to tell me, oh, Laddie. I left uh, for training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and I was sent from now after first eight weeks of basic, and I went to uh, Fort Sam Houston, Texas, to a medical training center. I was in the medical corps. And then I left there, I went to uh, Seoul, Korea, and Korea, and I was in the end, end of the Second World War and the Korean conflict. Then I was there for 18 months, and then I left there and I went to uh, Seoul. That was in Korea too. And I was there for 12 months. And then they sent me to Okinawa and Pusan. And I was there for about a year and a half. What was the biggest thing you learned in the military? Discipline. I was 16 years old when I went in, and I was, wasn't a bad person because I was very young. But I was trained at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and that's where I got my first eight weeks of basic. And uh, it was very exciting, but it was hard work. Well, thank you, Laddie. So my, my first question was about the military, and I asked multiple questions about it. But my second question is now going to be about Asheville. And, and everyone that knows Asheville knows the orange peel pretty well, I bet. And um, But before it was the orange peel, it was a number of different places. And one of the things it was was the Jade Club. That's exactly and you ran that. Tell us a little bit about the Jade Club. I went with me and a partner, Doug Brooks. He was a radio announcer for Hendersonville, and I was working at the time at the Hendersonville Country Club. And we opened it up, me and Doug Brooks, and I was very lucky to have him because he was my announcer. And uh, we had that for about a little over two years, or maybe two and a half years or three years. And then I left there, and I went back to Campobello, South Carolina, and I got involved with the Cracker Barrel restaurant. I opened it up, the one in in, uh, Campo, in Spartanburg, and then the one in Hendersonville. And then I went on and I started working for Shell Oil. I was doing all this, everything kind of at the same time. Now, the biggest one I really loved was the coach light. Okay, tell me That's about right that. That's right here in Asheville. Right here, it's in Fletcher. Okay. 
and we had the coach light for five years. Cecil Cantrell was the owner, and I was only PR public relation for him for that. And I was at the coach light for about five years. Well, Laddie, my third question now, and this leads perfectly into it. You had a place called Laddie's Place. Tell That's, me about Laddie's Place. Laddie's Place was on Spartanburg Highway. Right, uh, it was right on, right up from where the Cracker Barrel is. And I opened that up, and I did catering to the, uh, you know, the public, out of my place, because they had a dining room, kitchen, everything in it. But I mostly had it for like a. I, I did like disc, discos, and then I'd have uh, uh, people come in and entertain. Uh, John, uh, uh, the main one I had was very popular with me was uh, my man that I was in the Army with. Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. <laughs> Elvis Presley That's was awesome. in the Army with me in Korea. And when he got out, he didn't stay in. He got out. And he went to uh, back in music. So he told me when I'd come home and get me a place, he would perform for me. <laughs> and he came and performed for me there at uh, Laddie's place. And uh, also, after that, I had Junior Walker and All Stars, and I had uh, uh, Clarence Carter and all of them. Now, I was the booking agency then. Oh yeah, I did the booking agency, my own. And I had somebody, I had two, two secretaries and one, one bookkeeper. And they did all of that while I was out doing public, PR public relations. Well, Laddie, you bring such joy, smiles, and knowledge here to, uh, to Mountain Care. What's your favorite thing about coming here? My favorite thing about coming here is you, you meet the people. And most of the people here is, is, especially men, are military. So you're not never lonesome. You always have somebody to talk to because we love to talk to each other. And you walk and you have games. We, we play bingo. We do all of that together. And it's just like being at home. Don't forget shooting pool. And oh, No, no, no. I ain't, I ain't, I'm definitely not going to leave the pool out. And uh, normally when you come here, you'll see me normally around 1 o'clock at the pool table. <laughs> Laddie, question number five on five questions is always the same question. It is, what is your favorite dessert? Banana pudding and lemon pie. Beautiful. Laddie, thank you for being on five questions. We now bring you Mountain Care Drama Club, Who Done It? Another five-minute mystery. See if you can solve the case before the end of the program. Well, Alice, one more block and you'll behold the Brooks household. Two whole years, Jim. It just doesn't seem possible. It's been so long. You and Dorothy married and with the place of all you your own. Ah, it's true, all right. Only too bad you haven't taken advantage of the old Brooks hospitality sooner. Well, I'm here now, and I intend to. I'm having a perfectly wonderful time. 
Now, here we are. Oh, what a charming place this is. Dorothy's probably on needles and pins waiting for me to get you here. Dar Darling, it's Jim. Here's Alice. Jim, look. What? Where? They're on the living room floor. It's Dorothy. Dead. Mr. Brooks, I'm afraid you and Miss Manning will have to submit to some routine questions. I'll be happy to help in any way I can, Inspector. Thank you, Miss Manning. Now, Mr. Brooks, while you were waiting for some information I phoned for, I want you to tell me exactly what happened this morning. There's nothing much to tell. Both my wife and I were quite excited, expecting Alice, but that is Miss Manning here to visit us from Chicago. I was to wait until she called me at the office. And you were there all morning? Yes, until Miss Manning's train arrived and we came out here. I had written here Ms. Brooks to tell her that I would call Jim at the office as soon as I could had arrived. The train was an hour late, maybe. If I had been here earlier, maybe I could have prevented this. Huh. Well, that remains to be seen. Apparently, Mrs. Brooks was sitting here in this chair putting on red polish on her fingernails when she was shot from behind. Mm. The polish has spilled all over the carpet and she was still holding the tiny brush in her hand. She must have recognized her attacker and since she did not die instantly, she printed these three initials here on the floor with the polish. D-O-C. D-O-C? I wish we could tell those initials she was trying to reveal. You're sure you don't know anyone whose name would fit that? Positive. I can't. <gasps> oh, oh! Yes, Miss Manning? Can you think of somebody with those initials? Well, I, I, D-O-C, spells Doc, and it's Mr. Brick's nickname. Why? It can't be. Yes, Mr. Brooks? I haven't been called Doc for over two years. It was a nickname I picked up in school. My wife didn't like the name and never used it. No one in New York even knows me by Doc. You've got to believe me, Inspector. It's the truth. Oh. Hmm. Well, that we'll see. Just a minute. Hello? Yes, Grady. Yes. I see. Well, it's sewed up anyway, thanks. Well, you both will be happy to know our little murder is solved. Oh, then, then it wasn't Doc after all? 
no, Miss Manning, it wasn't Doc. I'm arresting you, Miss Manning, for the murder of Dorothy Brooks. Why did the inspector arrest Miss Manning for the murder of Mrs. Brooks? In a moment, we'll hear. But first, this. And now, back to our story. How dare you arrest me? I was still on the train. Your train wasn't late, Miss Manning. That phone call just verified the fact. You came out here, murdered Mrs. Brooks, returned to the station and called Mr. Brooks to pick you up. That wasn't what really gave you away though, Miss Manning. Too bad you didn't know Mr. Brooks was no longer called Doc when you printed those letters on the carpet. The next time you leave a name as a clue to throw suspicion, you'd better get the name right. But of course, there won't be a next time, will there, Miss Manning? Join us again next time for another chance to solve a five-minute mystery. One hundred years ago today, Shoeless Joe Jackson supposedly admitted during testimony to a grand jury that he was one of eight Chicago White Sox baseball players who took bribes to let the Cincinnati Reds win the 1919 World Series. It came to be known as the Black Sox Scandal, and it was devastating for baseball fans. A crowd of fans were gathered outside the Cook County Courthouse where Jackson was testifying. Word spread among them that their hero had admitted he'd helped throw the series to the Reds. According to legend, as Jackson left the courthouse, a heartbroken young boy went up to him and begged, Say it ain't so, Joe. It's a legend rather than a fact because there are holes in various aspects of this story. For one thing, there's no court record of Jackson admitting that he was involved in fixing the game, and publicly he always denied it. In fact, in 1921, he was found innocent by a Chicago jury. In addition, quotation experts have determined that the legendary quote is a misquote of a quote that was probably fabricated by a reporter in the first place. In the original version of the story he filed, Hugh Fullerton wrote that a young kid approached Jackson as he emerged and said, It ain't so, Joe, is it? Question mark? Fullerton wrote that Jackson replied, Yes, kid, I'm afraid it is. Somehow by 1940, It Ain't So Joe Is It morphed into, quote, Say It Ain't So Joe, end quote, in rewritten accounts of the incident. Then it became legend. However, no other eyewitness accounts corroborated either version of the quote and Jackson himself denied any such thing was said to be to him 
by a kid or someone else that day. So basically, the quote and the story were apparently made up by the reporter and then distorted further in later press accounts. Somehow, I am not surprised. This segment is called A Cup of Tea With, and right now I'm sitting with Lady Gloria. We each have a cup of tea in our hands. And Lady Gloria, I have a very important question for you. That is, can you please tell me about sky watching? Well, many moons ago, I was listening to public radio. And the broadcast was about a school, I'm not sure what school it was, anyway. They had these children downtown, and they were sky watching. I thought, sky watching? What? And they were talking with the children, and they were doing some activities down near Pritchard Park. And uh, this school, they had come from Asheville School. And they were downtown, and they, I wasn't like a recess they were having, it was a time to sky watch. And I thought, sky watching, I said, you know, I don't go to the movies very often, uh, and I have all the sky here at my home. Why don't I go out and sit down on my hiding binding <laughs> and start sky watching? And I learned sky watching stimulates my brain force, and I thought, huh, the younger I get, the more sky watching I choose uh -huh. to do. Because then it would give me a sense of agelessness. Okay. And if it stimulates my brain force, then that's beneficial for me as I get younger. I love it. Uh huh. So I, I have a, a lovely deck where I live in Oakley. And I just go out and I have some Adirondack chairs and I sit my hiney bunny down and I relax and I sky watch. And it is wonderful. It's like I don't go I don't go to see movies. I don't look at television. And sky watching costs zero cents. It costs zero cents. I get out on my deck, I relax, and I just let go. And I let the sky come into my space. And it's like an inner space. And it's like when I lift up my eyes, I know I'm stimulating my brain force anyway. And I think as I get younger, it's a good idea for me to do that. I don't, television is not my bag. And when I learned about the value of a live opportunity, to sit down and relax in the meantime, and then stimulate my brain force. And so I do it regularly. And here in the mountains, we had this beautiful blue sky, and I found that when I'm sky watching, I am so relaxed, my heartbeat is calm, and I'm doing nothing but surrendering to this huge phenomenon. If I look this way, Look up, I see the sky. If I turn to my left, if I turn to my right, if I get on my back, I mean, the sky is all, it's everywhere. It's omnipresence. And so I learned as I get younger, I'm not a person who looks at, I cannot look, 
sit down and look at television. That is not my bag. The sky is my television. And I have learned more and more about how this sport works. When it's stimulated, and when I go out, I can feel myself. I, I lift up my eyes as well, and I, I have a wonderful deck, and I live in an area where well, I'm not close to a neighbor. They won't say, well, what's the, what's the problem <laughs> or whatever. So I just stretch out, and I've done it for a long time. And I learned that in the stimulation of my brain, TV is not my bag. But sky watching is a key element of my existence. And I have a wonderful space where I can be with myself and with my sky friend. And the crows come, you can see them soaring up in the sky. Sometimes there are rainbows and the clouds, are just the cumulus clouds. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking, how in the world was this created in the first place? These beautiful And that was our blast from the past. Thank you for joining us on a journey down memory lane. And as always, may your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. <laughs>